वेलकम टू द सिक्सटींथ एपिसोड ऑफ थर्टी नाइन ए पॉडकास्ट दिस इज श्री पी श्रुति एंड आई वर्क एज अ मिटिगेशन इन्वेस्टिगेटर विद प्रोजेक्ट थर्टी नाइन ए प्रोजेक्ट थर्टी नाइन ए इज एन ऑर्गेनाइजेशन दैट कंडक्ट्स इंटर डिसिप्लिनरी रिसर्च ऑन अ रेंज ऑफ इशूज डीलिंग विद द क्रिमिनल जस्टिस सिस्टम इन टूडेज एपिसोड वी आर इन कॉन्वर्जेशन विद प्रोफेसर मार्क टेसे हु इज अ प्रोफेसर इन द डिपार्टमेंट ऑफ साइकोलॉजी एंड इन द डिपार्टमेंट ऑफ साइकैट्री एंड बिहेवियर हेल्थ एट द ओहायो स्टेट यूनिवर्सिटी He is also the director of the Ohio State Nazogner Center, a university center for excellence in developmental disabilities. Professor Stacey's clinical interests include the diagnosis of intellectual disability, the assessment and treatment of behavioral problem and psychiatric disorders in individuals with intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorder. He has also been involved in forensic work around the determination of intellectual disability in capital cases. Thank you Professor Tassey for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I want to start the podcast with understanding what intellectual disability is, are there different categories and how is it diagnosed? So intellectual disability <clears throat> is considered um a developmental condition. and what that means is essentially it is um a condition that originates either before birth um during birth as a result of some sort of insult or <clears throat> originates soon after birth during the developmental period um it is generally uh, diagnosed um during childhood um and and consists essentially of three diagnostic elements that are evaluated by the clinician in making a determination of intellectual disability um those three <clears throat> criteria include the presence of significant deficits in intellectual functioning uh, the second criteria which must also be present includes um the presence of significant deficits in adaptive functioning or in everyday skills that include things such as um <clears throat> uh social uh social skills understanding social rules interpersonal skills also practical skills which are everyday um self-care personal hygiene but also taking care of one's home apartment uh employment skills or work skills and then the third aspect of adaptive functioning relates to what we call conceptual skills which are um <clears throat> uh functional reading writing um being able to manage time money and things like that those two uh elements significant deficits in intellectual functioning significant deficits in adaptive functioning must originate during that developmental period um to meet the diagnostic criteria what we define as intellectual disability right so so there there are um historically there have been a categorization of people who have intellectual uh disability into severity levels but first it's important to realize that to have intellectual disability in of itself is a significant um disabling condition so i i say that because <clears throat> Sometimes people think that because you have mild intellectual disability that you are not disabled or it it's not an important condition or it's not a severe condition. Um 
you know, you, you really need to think of, you know, the analogy I like to give to people is it's like cancer. You know, when you have cancer, you have cancer and it's a serious disease. It's a serious um, condition that uh, is very scary and can lead um, to significant changes in one's life. And now there are certain types of cancers that we may think of as better than others, but still it's, it's, a, it's a very scary and a very important disease. Intellectual disability is broken up mainly for categorizing or understanding uh, the severity level into four conditions or four levels, mild, moderate, severe, and profound. And those levels of severity are based on the person's, uh, the level or intensity of their deficits of functioning around adaptive functioning and, and intellectual functioning. Right. Thank you for that, Professor Tassi. That was really useful. Um, so you have been very closely involved in guiding us on the chapter on intellectual disability that is part of the Deathworthy Report on Mental Health and the Death Penalty published by Project 39A. As a part of this study, we interviewed 88 prisoners on death row across five states in India. And the findings of this report revealed that nearly 11% of prisoners we interviewed were diagnosed with intellectual disability and over 75% were found to have deficits in intellectual functioning. What do you think these startling figures indicate about intellectual disability and the death penalty? Let me first start by saying the prevalence of intellectual disability in in the general population, and that's uh, also true in India. The prevalence being the number of people who have this condition. If we were able to go out and count every person and assess them for intellectual disability, is about two to three percent of the whole population. Now, when um, this project reported a prevalence of about eleven percent of prisoners, that is, of course, much higher percentage of people in prisons with the condition of intellectual disability than we would see in the general population. Uh, because we have similar rates in the United States and in European countries where we have a much higher percentage of people in prisons with intellectual disability than we do in the general population. And that does not mean that people with intellectual disability are more criminally inclined. What it means and what it um, what what we've come to understand is that people with intellectual disability who may come to commit a crime, which it does happen, are more likely to be caught, arrested, uh, and put in prison. They are less able, because of their disability, to um, put forth a good defense or help their lawyer put forth a good defense because of their cognitive and intellectual limitations. And also, we know that people with intellectual disability even if they may not have committed a crime, are more likely to make a false confession to be um, influenced or intimidated into admitting to things that they may not have done and then are falsely imprisoned. Um, And so those are factors that explain this higher percentage. Uh, But again, the percentage of about uh, 11% is uh, consistent with the rates of incarceration in the U.S. and in the United Kingdom and in other countries when we assess for intellectual disability. 
so currently in india there is no jurisprudence on intellectual disability and uh, this is why i think uh, the atkins versus virginia decision by the us supreme court finding that the execution of persons with what was then known as mental retardation violated the eighth amendment to the us constitution becomes very important uh, could you take us through the historical evolution of the jurisprudence on intellectual disability in the us and why is it important that intellectual disability be a precluding factor and not a mitigating factor well so you know it is interesting so that in in all uh, criminal offenses or in, in most criminal offenses in the united states intellectual disability uh, is a mitigating factor is considered to be a mitigating factor for people for a defendant because of the severity of the disability because often of what um what that disability comes with which is uh, you know um Uh, a greater uh, vulnerability to be um, influenced by others, a greater vulnerability to uh, making poor decisions, uh, being unable to um, problem solve or, or correctly uh, work out uh, complex social situations, which then leads people to committing um, regrettable uh, actions. In the case of the death penalty, um, not only has it been considered like a mitigating factor, but it's been considered an exclusionary factor to the most um, severe punishment that we have uh, for a crime, which is um, death, the death penalty. And in the United States, um, the death penalty has always been predicated on uh, the punishment where we punish the most um, severe criminals and the most severe um, crimes. However, when, when the Supreme Court took up this um, question of um, execution of people with intellectual disability, um, the Supreme Court ruled that because of this disabling condition, because of this limited intellectual ability, because of these poor adaptive skills, people with intellectual disability uh, are, are really deemed Um, to be less culpable than the average criminal. Uh, they are more likely to be, because of the intellectual disability, and it's not because they don't understand by de facto right from wrong. Many people with intellectual disability do understand right from wrong. But because the disability may lead them to making, uh, being more vulnerable to making poor decisions, not having uh, ability to really uh, modify their behavior based on the potential consequences uh, really makes uh, capital punishment, death penalty, really an unusually cruel punishment for these people because of that disability. So the Supreme Court um, ruled in 2002 that people with intellectual disability needed this extra protection. And even if they are uh, found to be guilty of a capital offense, Um, they should not be um, given the um, most uh, severe punishment, which is death penalty. And if, if I may add, since this uh, Atkins versus Virginia case in 2002, we've had two other uh, decisions from the United States Supreme Court around this question of death penalty of people with intellectual disability. And um, In 2014, there was a case brought up to the Supreme Court uh, uh, called Hall versus Florida, where um, 
the state of Florida uh, was refusing to um, uh, examine evidence of someone's claim of having intellectual disability if the results of a standardized IQ test were above a certain cutoff score. And, and so the, the state would apply this very bright line cutoff score to the results on a t- standardized test of intelligence as, as, uh, uh, as precluding their proof that they had significant deficits in intellectual functioning. And the Supreme Court in the Hall versus Florida decision was quite clear in stating that states, although states in the United States define intellectual disability, they must define it in um, conjunction or tethered to the national medical consensus of intellectual disability. And in the national consensus uh, at that time and today, um, tests are always interpreted within their a band of measurement error. And so tests are not infallible um, and uh, they may have measurement error. And so when clinicians and the courts are interpreting test results, they need to be cognizant of what we call standard error measurement. And there may be instances where somebody may have an IQ score of 72 or 73, even if the approximate cutoff is 70. So somebody may have a score that's slightly above that, but still meet the diagnostic criteria because uh, other information, uh, you know, the interpretation of these results and the evidence around adaptive functioning and those deficits and the determination of age of onset lend um, to or lead to a diagnosis of intellectual disability. So it was an important decision in Hall versus Florida where the court stipulated that intellectual disability is a condition. It's not a score. It's not a number on a test. And that's important um, finding. And then the third Supreme Court decision around this question of intellectual disability and the death penalty was in Moore versus Texas in 2017, where the state of Texas was using uh, a set of criteria that they had developed to, um, against which they measured claims of intellectual disability. These criteria uh, included really um, skills or abilities that were based on misconceptions of what a person with intellectual disability can and cannot do. For example, um, a person would not be found to have intellectual disability if they showed to have some leadership skills, which is, is a misconception. Or uh, in these uh, Florida cases, one of their other criteria was if the family didn't think the per- didn't think of this person as having intellectual disability, then that uh, played into this these factors. So the Supreme Court struck down these criteria that the state were, was using as essentially lay lay people misconceptions, and again reiterated the importance that states follow national medical consensus on diagnosing intellectual disability. And I'll say that these misconceptions that the state of uh, Texas was using were actually predicated uh, on uh, a fictional book of mice and men. And the state of Texas would say, well, if somebody is as retarded, which was the term they would use, as Lenny, 
which was a fictional character in a fictional book, then the person uh, should be exempt of the death penalty. And of course, the Supreme Court struck that down and reiterated the importance of defining and diagnosing intellectual disability according to the national medical consensus. Thank you for pointing out those uh, layperson misconceptions, Professor Tasse. I think it's very important, especially in our context where there is a lack of awareness within the legal community about intellectual disability and it's often confused with mental illness. So could you tell us about the difference between intellectual disability and mental illness and what is the correlation between the two? So that's a really, you know, these are really important questions. And these are debates that happen not only in India, but in the United States and in Canada and in Europe. And it's important to realize and it's important to remember that intellectual disability uh, in the vast majority of cases, and I'm going to say 90% of cases, uh, intellectual disability is not discernible by looking at a person or talking to a person. There are no physiologic or physical dysmorphic features. So there are no facial features. There's no uh, physical appearance. There's no pattern of speech that distinguishes a person with intellectual disability from a person without intellectual disability. Now, there's a number of cases, which is a small percentage, you know, less than 10%, that intellectual disability is due to a genetic condition, an organic a condition like Down syndrome or Fragile X. <clears throat> and um, when we talk about death penalty and intellectual disability, we're not talking about those individuals. We're talking about people who um, have ma- much milder forms of intellectual disability. And again, who don't look any different when you look at them in a courtroom or in the community than anybody else. So Intellectual disability and mental illness are often confused, and and that's because these conditions are all found in the same diagnostic manuals that we have. The World Health Organization publishes the International Classification of Diseases, in which we find mental illnesses and intellectual disability, because these are the books that uh, medical professionals and, and healthcare professionals use to identify these conditions and to diagnose them. Uh, and it's the same thing in the United States. We use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which has about 350 conditions, which includes different mental illnesses and also includes intellectual disability. But they are very distinct and very different. So let me start by saying intellectual disability is really a condition of uh, what we used to think of as, you know, we used to call it mental retardation. So of delay or retardation of uh, the brain functioning and the brain development. And, And it also implies a certain arrest, but it doesn't mean that people with intellectual disability cannot learn. They can learn. Um. But really, their, um, uh, the condition of intellectual disability is something that is diagnosed in very young age and is a lifelong condition. Um, so there's no medication, there's no treatment uh, to cure intellectual disability. Mental illness is very different. It, mental illness is a large uh, umbrella that includes many uh, conditions. Uh, such as depression, anxiety, phobia, schizophrenia. But these conditions uh, 
can occur at any point in time in one's life and can be more episodic or can be more transitory. Uh, many of them, most of them are not lifelong. Uh, many of them today can be well-treated, well-regulated uh, with medications um, and can uh, help the person lead to a very uh, productive and successful life. Uh, again, intellectual disability cannot be treated with medication. Uh, and intellectual disability really impacts the person's thinking, their ability to learn, uh, but doesn't affect their mood or their emotion, uh, their uh concept of reality, whereas mental illness can, in many instances, affect emotions, mood, thinking process, perception, and of course, their behavior. What is the correlation between intellectual disability and mental illness? And let me just add that intellectual disability is not a protective factor against mental illness. So a person who has intellectual disability can also have mental illness. Um, and in fact, we know from all our research that because of intellectual disability, because of the disabling condition of intellectual disability, because of the, the people who have intellectual disability, because of their limited ability to cope with stress or problem solve complex social situations, they are actually more likely to develop um, specific uh, mental illness problems or in, uh, psychiatric disorders such as depression and anxiety disorder. Right. So you've already covered part of this in your previous answer, but I just wanted to ask a popular myth or interpretation of the deficits in adaptive behavior among lawyers or legal communities that it might lead the judge to believe that these people constitute a threat to society or that they need to be segregated. How do you think capital defense lawyers should mitigate this issue? So the popular myth and uh, problems around interpreting deficits adaptive behavior, um, again, one misconception or one myth is that people with intellectual disability are not able to do anything. And that is a, a really um, um, critical myth or misconception to overcome. Uh, people with intellectual disability, especially people who have what we would think of as more milder forms of deficits of intellectual functioning and adaptive behavior, again, they have a very serious condition of intellectual disability, but they can learn and with the right supports, with the right help of benefactors in their community, or with the uh, right amount of repetition and structure, uh, they can learn to live uh, very successful lives. They can learn to live uh, relatively independently, uh, get jobs that may have uh, a, maybe a lower complexity level uh, in terms of tasks. And so they may sometimes appear to have uh, a lot of strengths. And that's not incompatible, or that does not negate a diagnosis of intellectual disability. So they may be able to uh, present certain strengths or assets. Um, and again, that's because people with intellectual disability can learn things, can, with the right, I guess, context, uh, can have uh, stable social relationships. Uh, and so judges and lawyers often uh, misinterpret some of these strengths and assets as um, a confounding situation. 
Um, and so, you know, the way we learn, the way everybody learns is uh, by observing other people, right? We don't have to make a mistake to learn from a mistake. We can see somebody else do it. And that's why it's important when we think about segregation and integra- integration. That's why it's important in, in most countries uh, we have really moved away from segregating people who have intellectual disability to including them in the community, including them in society, because uh, they can learn from everybody else and they can learn to become productive members of our society in general. Thank you, Professor Tasse. So I just want to take off from uh, what you mentioned about, you know, with support, they can hold jobs and they can have stable social relationships. So I've we've observed how uh, there is a lot of focus on presence of strengths, like uh, just the ones that you just mentioned. Uh, and uh, in, in these cases, when we present this at the court, it's often seen as not being grave enough to mitigate death. Uh, I believe even Nagendran Dharmalingam, who was recently executed by the Singaporean government, had mild intellectual disability. And this is where I think it's important that a capital defense lawyer is presenting a whole picture of intellectual disability, not just as a clinical category. So I have two questions here. Why is it difficult for persons with intellectual disability who may have mild or moderate support needs to be diagnosed? And secondly, could you tell us more about why a life history approach is important in cases involving intellectual disability? Let me let me attack the first question. Um, so a person may have mild or moderate uh, severity of intellectual disability <clears throat> and um, may be functioning well uh, because of the supports that are in place. And that's why it's important to diagnose um, those conditions so that we can provide um, supports and services to those individuals. And when we provide the right amount of supports and services to individuals with intellectual disability, well, they generally will function better. They generally will learn more things. They will adapt better. They will find jobs and stay in their jobs when the supports uh, and services are correct and are well-placed. If we then say, well, that person's doing well, uh, maybe they don't have, you know, a misconception might be, well, maybe they don't have intellectual disability and we can take that away. Well, then the person will regress. The person will start functioning poorly. So it's important to identify who has uh, this condition of intellectual disability so we can then identify where are their strengths, where are their limitations, and put in place supports. And when the person does well, does better, that doesn't mean that they don't have the condition. It just means that what we're putting in place, what we're layering in, are correct, are effective are meeting the needs of this person's support needs, and we need to continue doing that. Um, And so that's important, and that's why it's important to identify and diagnose people with intellectual disability is so that we can help support them, because if we don't provide the right supports, then their functioning will regress, will not progress. Uh, And that's, uh, I think, everybody's betterment. So life history, understanding life history, understanding family history <clears throat> is important because um, it can give us information about um, uh, environment, uh, what environment this person grew up in, what setting, what context. 
because we know that there are um, a multitude of risk factors that can explain intellectual disability, uh, and it's not always genetic. So it could be genetic, and then we may look at life history and, and family history and see if there's other individuals in the family who may have similar hereditary conditions. But sometimes the risk factors are uh, multiple uh, and um, are interacting. And so we need to understand that by looking at, you know, did the person grow up in an abusive uh, household, which can be, can be an important risk factor? Did they grow up in, in an environment or a context that may have had, uh, you know, a farming area where they may have used um, uh, pesticides or herbicides or ter- other, ter- or they may have been exposed to other teratogens, which then affects brain development in young children. <clears throat> Were they in an environment or a household where they uh, received stimulation, adequate stimulation to develop and learn and, and develop their ad- uh, academic skills? So looking at all of these, um, the family history and the life history of the person is really critical in identifying um, or um, uh, giving us leads around what may have been the risk factors or the causes, and then help us really understand a better clinical picture, and then also may lead to how we can uh, better intervene or mitigate uh, the person's intellectual disability uh, in their everyday context, whether that's school, work, or play in the community. Right. Uh, So you've already told us how intellectual disability cannot be treated. But uh, I just wanted to understand if you could tell us a little bit more about how people in prison with intellectual disability should be supported. Yes. Well, you know, that's a good comment. I just want to make sure that I'm I'm not uh, um, misstating what I want to say. But when I say that, intellectual disability cannot be treated. What I mean is the condition itself. So it's a lifelong condition. Now, people who have that condition, intellectual disability, because of the nature of the intellectual impairments and their um, uh, resulting limitations in learning and in coping with stress, um, we know that there are certain um, broad approaches uh, that lend themselves better to good outcome, to better supporting individuals with intellectual disability. So, for example, in a, in a correctional setting or in a prison setting, people with intellectual disability uh, are often more likely to be victimized or taken advantage of by other prisoners or inmates who don't have an intellectual disability. So making sure that we are vigilant around that so that they don't get exploited. People with intellectual disability do much better with structure, with uh, predictability. So being in an environment that has a lot of routines, a lot of predictable structure, known, known expectations, people with intellectual disability will do much better in those settings. Being able to um, have repetition where they can learn things uh, and then um, know that uh, if A happens, then B happens, and then C is what normally would uh, happen next. So those are are some broad strokes of things that help people um, with intellectual disability 
function better in a setting, whether it's an incarcerated setting, a prison setting, or other, uh, really can lead to uh, better outcomes in terms of their behavior and, um, and their mental health as well. Thank you, Professor Tassi. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for taking out the time to do this. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, this is a really important area to be talking about.